The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. This episode features a conversation with Jennifer Jackwet, an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Studies at NYU. She is co-author of a recent study exploring the climate responsibilities of industrial meat and dairy producers. Now, if you follow developments in the plant-based food space, you may be aware that several big meat and dairy companies have either invested in plant-based or cell-cultivated food startups, or acquired plant-based companies, or have launched plant-based brands themselves. However, These efforts by big meat and dairy to enter the alternative protein space have not been accompanied by any commitments to phase out the use of livestock or reduce emissions from livestock. Jennifer's study found that the majority of big meat and dairy companies not only lack emissions reporting, but also haven't made any specific commitments to reduce emissions from the use of livestock. To make matters worse, Several of the companies included in the study have spent millions of dollars lobbying against climate policies and funding research that tries to undermine efforts to link the industrial livestock industry and the climate emergency. We talk about this important new study and also discuss the role that alternative proteins can play in displacing animal proteins and thereby reduce the impact of industrial livestock. If you care about transforming our food system, ending factory farming, or combating climate change, this is a must-listen conversation. Jennifer Jacquette, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thanks for having me. I read your recent research about the climate responsibilities of industrial meat and dairy producers, and the timing couldn't have been more perfect because I found myself lately asking uh, a lot more questions about how is it that we're going to get to a better place when it comes to environmental impacts of the food industry or the global food system. How are we going to actually reduce emissions and minimize the impact on ecosystems within the next 20 to 30 years, and um, several proposed solutions have been offered over the last 10 years, Um, most recently alternative proteins and a few other technology-based solutions have emerged, yet I don't see, or at least in my observations and readings, I haven't seen um, a big or clear commitment from uh, the big meat and dairy producers to not just reduce emissions, but more importantly, a commitment to phase out the use of animals or to address emissions that are tied directly to uh, land clearing for growing feed and grazing, as well as methane emissions and nitrous oxide emissions. So, I guess let's start with um, let's start with the big meat and dairy companies. To what extent do they even acknowledge that they have a problem? or a responsibility when it comes to climate? So 
we looked at the top 35 meat and dairy companies globally. 10 of those are in the United States. The rest are, are scattered around in, in other various countries. And they acknowledged to some degree that climate change is a problem. And they acknowledged to some degree, some acknowledged to some degree that their business operations play a role in it. Primarily, they focus on if you read the sustainability reports, they try to focus on the energy use on the farm and carbon dioxide specifically. But we know that that represents only somewhere like five to 10% of overall contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. The truth is that a lot of the impacts on climate of this sector are through methane, um, land clearing, and other aspects of their supply chain. And so you'll see that they often will frame the issue around energy use on the farm. Hormel recently recently did this um, in their in their latest um, commitment and phrasing of their commitments to climate change. Um, but they'll they do less to acknowledge that that issue of methane and the issue of of cows, of course. And so now that said, they are changing very quickly. So when the when the initial report um, done by Grain, uh, the Grain Report and this group IATP came out in 2018, so we used their emissions data for these 35 companies. Only one company at that time had committed, had made a commitment to net zero, had even talked about a net zero um, idea. And then when we submitted this paper in um, last summer in 2020, you know, four companies had done that. Now we're up to, since this paper came out, uh, six companies out of the 35, 35. So this is showing you that this is on their radar. They are changing. They are reframing a little bit their, their conversation. Now you can ask, well, what's actually happening on the farm? And there, you know, we really don't see any changes, but at least we see a, a change in the last few years around the conversation. So at least they know finally people are asking questions of them, and which which I, which I think is also interesting because we're in the year twenty twenty one. The FAO came out with their you know groundbreaking livestock's long shadow report back in the year two thousand six that first, as far as I know, first outlined the extent of uh, industrial livestock production's impact on uh, greenhouse gas emissions and the impact on the planet. And yet it's taken us up till this point. And, and, I, and even what you're saying now is we are finally starting to see some signs that they're paying attention to the problem and maybe not necessarily admitting responsibility in any shape or form. And, but what I think you mentioned there that's really interesting is the, even when they address or they, or they look at what the problem is, it's usually, it seems to be the focus on scope one emissions. So maybe we can start by breaking that down first, which is what do we mean by scope one, two, and three emissions? And how do most big meat and dairy companies categorize their emissions problem or their net zero commitments? Okay, so we should be clear that many of these companies do not even have emissions reporting. So we don't know. Then in that case, you know, we, it's up to uh, an NGO or civil society group to try to do that accounting for them by accounting for, as you say, these scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, which have, you know, varying um, levels of, let's say, direct emissions versus indirect emissions through your supply chain. Let's say you're JBS and you're procuring beef from a, a, a farmer who's clearing Amazon rainforest to grow those cows, those will go into your scope three emissions, essentially. And we're so we're not even seeing that the companies are, you know, self-reporting their emissions. Therefore, are they aware of scopes one, two, and three? I'm not, I can't say for certain that they are. Some companies are, and they're very explicit about their one scope one, two, and three emissions. And those emissions categories, as you know, come directly out of the UNFCCC framework or the large international climate conventions. I think it's worth noting as a finer point on the 2006 Livestock's Long Shadow Report, first of all, a radical view uh, that was pushed by the FAO, which we don't tend to think of as radical in any way, um, as you say, 15 years ago. But 
It was a sector-based analysis. It was not about these big companies. And the first look at these big companies was in 2018 from that report I mentioned. And that fundamentally changed our view or our lens of responsibility, which is partly why you didn't see these companies making any statements because no one was paying particular attention to them. Now they know we're talking about, do they talk about their emissions? How do they report their emissions? Are they thinking about methane? Are they talking about their supply chains? And they don't bear entirely, of course, all the responsibility for this. You could just as easily argue that consumers play a role. You could also argue that countries themselves do, because the other thing we looked at for this research is, are countries acknowledging the animal agriculture sector in their nationally determined contributions to the Paris Agreement. And they also, the majority of countries are not explicitly acknowledging animal agriculture. As you point out, 15 years later, after this important report, they're still not talking about it. And I think academics like myself and and university researchers are obligated to bring more attention to this issue because as we were talking about before, before we got started, we're not going to get where we need to go without the sector. And just to be clear in terms of where we need to go, uh, by most estimates, we have to keep global temperature rise. Uh, the conservative estimate is two degrees Celsius to prever- prevent irreversible catastrophic impacts on ecosystems and water supplies and food production. But we're already at 1.1 degrees Celsius, and we're starting to see melting ice and heat waves and uh, storms and other impacts. So the 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 new target that everyone's talking about is 1.5 degrees Celsius by the year 2050. And as you said, the right way to people are approaching it is governments and uh, so countries and uh, corporations need to commit to some sort of net zero goals so that we can somehow meet that 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 limit or keep global so that we can bend the curve exactly yeah, so, we so can... that these emissions start to decline. And so then you dig deeper. And this is what I I loved about your report, because it didn't just look at emissions reporting standards and climate commitments of the 35 companies, but it also looked at the company emissions in the context of the 16 headquarter countries that they're in. Because here you have countries making, and some of them making legally binding commitments on reducing emissions, but seem to somehow... uh, Maybe it's a technicality, and, and I do think you, you and you went into that in the report, and I'd love to talk about that too, which is just how do you keep how do you contain the operations of a company that's truly global but headquartered in one country, who gets credit or blame for the emissions? Um, can, can you draw that correlation for me, which is what are the countries doing versus these companies that are global entities but still run out of some of these big companies uh, big countries that are making commitments today? Yeah, so there are 16 countries that are headquartered to these 35 largest meat and dairy companies. And so we looked at their nationally determined contributions, again, looked at whether or not they um, mention animal agriculture specifically. It's a good timing to do that as countries are uh, making new commitments, essentially, to the Paris Agreement. The vast majority of countries have not mentioned animal agriculture specifically. Again, they're home to some of the biggest animal ag cult companies in the world, and they're not talking about the sector. The other thing we did, as you point out, is imagined a scenario where we we attributed extraterritorial emissions, those that occur outside the country, but are attributed to that company, that industrial producer, to the headquarter country. And that's not that crazy to do. In fact, I um, just heard from my colleague that the UK Uh, in their new NDC to Paris that has included extraterritorial emissions from the aviation sector, for instance, in there. So now our thought experiment just got slightly closer to reality uh, that extraterritorial emissions may actually be included. I mean, otherwise, the question is who bears the responsibility? According to Paris, of course, the idea, I mean, the execution of this is a little trickier, but is that those emissions that occur within the you know sovereign territory of a country are attributed to that country but when you have a lot of production occurring you know all over the world in places especially with with maybe weaker governance standards or less ability to enforce certain environmental standards or climate uh standards or commitments that becomes you know a, a little bit of a moral question on whether that's the right kind of attribution 
So in any case, to your point, a company like Fonterra in New Zealand, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, if we actually did that, if we actually said, okay, Fonterra, your, your emissions were going to attribute to the country of New Zealand, where you're headquartered, that single company would, would contribute more than 100% of all of New Zealand's nationally determined contribution to the Paris Agreement. And that's important also because Fonterra is not just physically affecting the planet, but they're affecting socially um, that the governance environment in which they operate. Like they have actively worked to um, ensure that methane is not part of New Zealand's climate commitments um, because they know that this is a big weakness in their business operations. Uh, so you that was also part of our study was to talk not just about the the physical impacts of the meat and dairy sector, not just to talk about how they frame uh, the conversation, you know, their self-presentation, not just to talk about how they are included or not included in national accounting, but also to look at especially the 10 U.S. companies and how they actively influence the social environment in which they operate, the political environment. And as you know, it's no surprise, these are giant companies with giant influence, but they're they're actively influencing climate policy in a direction I think we don't want to go, which is delay regulations, don't include methane, don't look at, um, you know, scope three emissions and, and things like that. Let's go back a bit to the self-reporting of emissions. Um, I want you to kind of underscore how bad it is at the moment, which is, um, you know, I try to, I've even visited the websites and started reading some of the sustainability reports put out by the likes of Tyson. And, you know, how would you categorize how they are self-reporting emissions? Because right now they're not required to. So they're just doing it partly because more uh, research seems to be coming out, your report including, that is calling them out on the fact that they aren't addressing this problem. What is, who's doing it best? Like, give me an example. I know companies like Danone and Nestle maybe are slightly better off than the likes of JBS and Tyson, but depending on what we're comparing them to, right? So what's happening today in terms of self-reporting and uh, what, is there a gold standard these companies should be aspiring to to meet uh, or it's pretty much up to them? Well, sort of one in the same in some ways as often happens in our in our current world, which is that um, so we didn't, again, do the actual emissions accounting for these companies. We relied on this 2018 report that did that. And they, uh, you know, compared the their independent accounting uh, with some of the um, emissions that the companies reported themselves. A good example of this, again, is Fonterra in, in New Zealand, which uh, has contested uh, the independent assessments. Uh, I believe it's Fonterra, um, has contested the, the results of that grain report. But when grain said, all right, here's how we got to our calculations. Now, could you show us how you got to yours, um, which were significantly less? Uh, they wouldn't reveal mm. their accounting methods. So this, again, is it just speaks to so much of the gray area, of course, with, with regards to climate change accounting in general, but is this push, of course, as part of the Paris Agreement, part of the pledge and review uh, ethos is a, trans, is a kind of transparency. And we don't have a strong sense, again, for many of the companies on how they even reach their own emissions. So we're relying on these independent uh, assessments, which are based on, you know, head counts, essentially, of the number of animals in production. Mm. And there is an equation that you can use, uh, provided in part by the FAO and this program called LEAP, um, which helps reach this, um, this sort of estimate of emissions based on uh, animal head counts. And the industry was involved uh, in developing that calculation tool. <laughs> So um, to the extent that they disagree with it, they were actually stakeholders in that process. Um, and that came out of, you know, Livestock's Long Shadow and some of the earlier work on, on animal ag and climate change that we discussed. So they self-report to the extent that they are doing it based on their own calculations. Um, and the, the commitments that they're making do not necessarily match up with the countries that they are operating out of. Um, 
But here's where I think your report gets really interesting, which is they're actively mitigating efforts to um, to focus on the problem. So can you tell me a little bit more about what your research revealed about what some of these companies are doing right now? Yeah, so um, for the for that section of the paper, which was about sort of political influence and, and the social discourse around climate, we focused specifically on the 10 U.S. companies, although we've done a lot we've done a lot of digging around on all the companies globally but as you can imagine we're simply less familiar with the political context um for for many of these companies and we have access in the US to to databases like opensecrets.org which can reveal you know lobbying money spent and there's just a little more familiarity again with the the political system so we looked closely with a set of 20 questions at at us companies that asked you know for instance have they contributed to scientific studies that minimize the relationship between big meat and dairy and climate change have they uh, supported politicians who actively oppose climate policies like um our work began after uh, the Kyoto Protocol, but cap and trade um, was another uh, major policy um, they that they opposed. And so we tried to look at, you know, how they're influencing or supporting a political system that is opposed to climate action. And, you know, why, why this is interesting to me, of course, is in this country, I'm in the U.S., it's so frustrating because you see that the majority of Americans want action on climate change. And you ask yourself, how is this not happening? And we have this congressional gridlock, but largely it's supported again by these large industrial forces. Um, not, and it's not just fossil fuel companies. Now we see that meat and dairy companies are also playing a role in that. And so they're they're not as active or as big as fossil fuel, but they are they are committed to um, to working against this issue because the writing is on the wall for them. And I think one thing I wanted to mention about, you know, again, the, the former points you were making is these companies are saying they are going to grow. They're telling their shareholders, we are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And under that premise, you know, things will, we will not stay within that two degree, let alone a one and a half degree target if that is the attitude of these companies. And that's another self-presentation. On the one hand, they talk about net zero, and then to their shareholders, they're talking about growing um, and, and increasing the supply to you know, growing, um, developing markets for meat and dairy. Is it partly, and so maybe, maybe I'll try to play devil's advocate, maybe on behalf of them now, it's going to be hard, but I'll yes. try, which is, is it partly because they, they uh, and I don't know if this is supported by any science, but that the energy reductions that they're making, the work that they're doing to source um, to reduce emissions in transportation and perhaps in the operation of their factories, will somehow um, bring about some some level of massive emissions reduction that sort of still allows them to grow in some sort of a sustainable manner and reach these 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 net zero commitments that they've laid out. So, um, you know, I am not a climate modeler, but Sonali McDermott, who is the second author on the paper, is, and I have other colleagues in my department who work exactly on these questions. So I feel like I can still speak to this issue, which is that, um, yes, they are making, you know, they're putting solar panels on their farms. Mm-hmm. They're trying to reduce their fossil fuel use, which again is not does not account for the vast majority of their emissions. Um, JBS is making commitments to net zero, which sounds amazing, and it would be if it was true. But I don't see how you get to net zero when you're clearing the Amazon at the rate that the beef industry is in in Brazil, for instance. And um, and so in in any case. Uh, they are making commitments about around energy. It is reducing their energy use, but that is not where the vast majority of emissions lie for these farms. And if we don't see, you know, the latest thing you've probably heard about is like the seaweed eating mm-hmm. cows um, to minimize, you know, methane from cow belches. Again, these technological solutions, um, on-farm technological solutions 
can do something to mitigate, but it's, you know, we're talking about bending the curve. We're not talking about growing at a slower rate, which is essentially what these what these mitigation strategies would do, they would slow down the increase mm. in emissions. What we have to actually lead to a decrease. And without addressing methane, without addressing, you know, uh, NO2, without addressing land use change, as I understand it, all the models that, you know, that we've been looking at suggest we can't get there through energy use alone. We can't get there through diet, cow diet alone. And and just to say the imbalance of um, of what they're trying to talk about, which is if you focus purely on energy, you're not addressing, which is what I've read is ninety percent of the emissions, which comes from the actual uh, land clearing and methane and NO two emissions from the cows, um, and from ruminants in general. I do think that what's you're leading me down a, a, a line of questioning now, that which I'm, I'm I'm very excited to go into, which is, so what is the answer to uh, to this this dilemma facing the livestock industry, right? So it's pretty clear that uh, it's it's the it's a sector that isn't given enough attention somehow, even and and in the U.S. it tends to be for political reasons because. You can talk about climate commitments and Biden's doing that right now. His administration is seems to have a clear focus on it, but it somehow always tends to leave out agriculture. Uh, and it's usually business as usual when it comes to, to farming. And, and we know when it comes to farming, it's largely uh, big ag that we're talking about here in this country. So if we are not going to see any clear commitments, and if all the focus is largely going to be on energy reduction, with solar panels and electric vehicles and other things versus actually addressing the problem, which is the the use of animals. And as you said, it's not just about slowing down, right? If if that's the aim we're going for, perhaps we'll get there, right? Maybe we will be less bad in the next 20 years versus much worse than we are, but what we're, much worse, which is what we're projected to be. But it still doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't bring, it doesn't bend the curve. It doesn't bring us to, it, it gives us a very little hope of staying under 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, rise in temperature. I'm trying to find an, uh, a politically correct way to ask this. What the hell are we all doing <laughs> in, the, in, the, in, the, in the environmental space if uh, we aren't truly tackling this problem? Like, What is all this money being poured into technological solutions for? Is it we've just accepted that the best we can do is perhaps slow it down a little bit? And that's it. And we're going to not try harder. Um, or are, am I missing something? And I'll, let's contextualize it further by, you mentioned um, efforts, which I'm not saying that they shouldn't be done, which is efforts to reduce uh, methane emissions by using uh, seaweed for cows. Um, there's also, as I said earlier, the rise of plant-based foods, or alternative proteins, a lot of work that's currently and money that's currently being put in, at least in the private sector, to encourage innovation in the development of uh, cell-cultivated foods or meats. And these are all being presented as uh, potential climate solutions and if, if it's an ecosystem solutions. And so... My question, I guess, is, and I and some of the big meat companies themselves, including the big dairy companies, have now either launched their own brands or have invested in companies or startups that are focusing on these technologies, um, and and perhaps so far have not drawn a clear clear correlation between those efforts and their net zero emissions efforts. Uh, at least I haven't seen anything. I mean, JBS didn't come out and say we're going net zero by 2030 and a way to get there is by making 30% of our uh, uh, of our product chain to be entirely plant-based. That that wasn't the commitment. It was all about getting rid of illegal deforestation in, in the Amazon, which they probably should do. Um, so I guess my question, my long-winded way of asking this question is, what role does technology play here and how are we actually going to bring about the change? Uh, I know that's a very big question, but I'll break it down further. But let's start there maybe and, and see where it goes. Well, you know, I find some 
utility uh, in thinking about meat and dairy a little bit the way that we think about fossil fuels in the sense that there are more intensely polluting fossil fuels like coal and less intensely polluting like natural gas, let's say. And in that meat and dairy space, you know, beef really represents that kind of coal position in terms of greenhouse gas intensity. And so, um, you know, a lot of people have also worried, you know, to put a finer point, I think on the things you said, that ultimately people are just going to shift from beef to chicken and fish or something like that um, as a, as a climate solution. And so, um, and so that could, you know, also be a strategy in the same way we're shifting from coal to uh, oil and natural gas um, largely. So we're, we're phasing out those, those dirtier forms of production, uh, more polluting forms of production. So, so to your point, you know, if you wanted a technological solution, maybe you would think, well, so a substitute for beef should be our first technological aim. And I think that's, you know, no surprise that that's exactly what we're seeing, you know, with the cell cell based meatballs, they are trying to go after especially that, you know, sort of ground round beef space. So, um, so yes, I mean, would that be a, a solution potentially if, if it's a genuine substitute for that for that product. Um, and this is, you know, beyond the scope of this particular paper we were discussing, but it's certainly within the lines of work of other research that I've done and looking into, I look specifically at the cellular-based uh, seafood uh, initiatives. And it's the same question there. Now it's not a climate context so much as it is, uh, you know, other issues like over-exploitation and illegal fishing and slavery at sea, um, but still broader questions of sustainability. And what's interesting about uh, cell-based seafood is that if we think, oh, well, will this operate as a true substitute for, uh, for wild-caught fish? Well, you know, we already have a true substitute for wild-caught fish through this thing called aquaculture or fish farming. And the food industry that has arisen in the last half century or so has grown remarkably fast and made all the same promises that the cellular meats are making that we are going to be more sustainable, we are going to be cleaner, we're going to be fairer, uh, and we're going to provide a genuine solution. So I looked at aquaculture, my uh, my um, co colleague Luke Stunts and I examined 30 uh, different aquaculture species and how, what, how they affected their wild caught analogs. And only two of them <laughs> negatively impacted the catch. They did not substitute, they were additive. And you see that the cellular companies too, this is part of the, I think their own positioning, a little bit like the beef companies that are saying, we're gonna address climate and we're also gonna grow. The cell companies are saying to some people, we're going to be a substitute, we're going to save the world. And then to the regulators, they're saying, oh no, we're just a third option in the marketplace. We're just, a, or a second option in the case of, of beef, or maybe you have plant-based alternatives too. And the real question is, how do we get there through a free market approach alone? Mm -hmm. That's what I can't see. That's what I, I have a hard time imagining, unless there's just a vast moral revolution around the eating of animals. I don't see this happening through a free market-based approach. But if governments, through their commitments to Paris or otherwise, said we're going to stop subsidizing uh, the meat and dairy industry, we're going to stop subsidizing fossil fuels, and we're going to make big investments in these more promising, more sustainable technologies. We're going to help them get a foothold. We're going to make them cost competitive. Then you could imagine, you know, through this more integrated, uh, high level approach, uh, then I think you can start imagining, but it has to happen swiftly. And it can't happen, you know, 40, 40 years from now, and speed of us is of the essence. So I think people understanding that we're going to need that, you know, that regulatory might is part of the solution um, as to meat and dairy, to, to overfishing, um, to so many of the, you know, the problems we face in the Anthropocene. And, you know, to the, to the point about the, the you were saying Biden's not doing much on the issue of, of meat and dairy. 
On the other hand, the the conservative forces in America are saying he wants to ban meat <laughs> consumption entirely. I don't know if you saw those yeah. headlines today. We eat in this country just an average. So it's like, you know, if you don't eat meat, you somebody else is making up for it in tremendous ways. More than 200 pounds mm-hmm. of meat per person per year. Um, you just think we actually do have some wiggle room here. You know, this is not this does not have to be the end of the world. In fact, people would benefit health wise. We'd have a lot of other um, environmental benefits. Water, the water use in California alone of the animal agriculture sector is is pretty mind blowing. Um, We would have less deforestation, as you say, in the Amazon and, and otherwise. And so I don't, I don't buy that this is, you know, pure cost. There are, there are benefits to actually addressing um, this as well, but both personally and environmentally. I, I have to agree with a lot of what you just said there, but I, I think that I want to pick up on this finer point that technology alone, at least so far, and I like the, the aquaculture example, or at least what your research has shown so far, that technology alone, if left to the free market forces, is there's no guarantee, especially in the food space. Maybe it does work in certain other industries where perhaps there's uh, things aren't as complicated and global uh, in the nature in, in the way they are in food. Where just because you've introduced a new technology and you've um, you've created a new market for a product, it doesn't mean you are in any way affecting the existing players in the market. And I've been recently giving the example, and I know you've also looked at dairy companies because a recent example I've been looking closely at is um, is the dairy industry and the rise of plant-based milks, which now amount to about 15% of the entire uh, liquid milk sales uh, in the U.S. at least, as far as I know. Uh, but at the same time, it has not impacted dairy production in any possible way. In fact, there's even more dairy being produced now. And there's, I think, if I remember the numbers correctly, about 85,000 more cows over the last one year in, in dairy production. So it's only, it's grown, maybe it's slowed down its pace of growth. It's grown only one point something percent versus two. But the yeah. fact of the matter is it's growing. And and actually the sales of plant-based milks have nothing to do with what's happening in dairy. In fact, there's more consolidation, there's more vertical integration happening there. Um, so in fact, it seems like it's, as you said, it's additive versus actually supplementing the industry. And if that trend continues, and if you then look at the data that even the most optimistic and uh, views of, of uh, alternative proteins, it says, recent reports, some put out by the industry themselves, say that by 2035, perhaps alternative proteins as a category will make up 11%, maybe at best 20% of the entire market. We still don't know what that really means in terms of bringing, you know, changing the data that you've seen in your research about big meat and dairy. And so what you what's missing is not just about encouraging innovation and encouraging investments from the private sector and perhaps even um, the government focusing on, on innovation, is how is any of this going to happen unless the big meat and dairy companies are, by some regulatory action, required to do something? And it seems like if you leave it up to them, all we'll get is uh, full-page ads in the New York Times from these companies and some vague commitments to do certain things by the year 2030 that no one can, no independent body is ever going to be able to verify. And so we just have to wish and hope and wait to see what happens till 2030 when it's already too late. Well, you know, I take that full page ad as an industry on the defensive, Mm -hmm. which is still better than no attention toward it at all. And um, I think your point is is well taken. I mean, you know, this is a globalized world, very interconnected, even government policy would be inadequate. But um, it's not just about investments. It's not just about startups. It is about divestment. It is about ending certain industries. And when the writing was on the wall that Peabody is a coal company and it's a coal company and it's a coal company, it's not going Mm -hmm. to stop being a coal company tomorrow. The 
activists move much more toward the financial sector as a point of leverage. And the financial sector is doing a lot in really interesting ways to prevent Arctic drilling. You know, they're not putting their money to prevent certain pipelines from being built, to prevent new infrastructure. So I suspect with meat and dairy, there will be a very similar pivot that we will accept that JBS of the world is a beef company and it's not going to stop being a beef company and that we will start leveraging the power of private finance, investors, divestors, um, and of ho- hopefully, of course, government regulation, but it's an all of the above approach. And it's certainly not a free market innovation, private sector will save us all. I mean, I don't think anyone should have that uh, rosy view of the world at this point. We will be lucky, right? You know, basically not to annihilate ourselves. Um, and however we get there will require, you know, private sector, public actors, uh, individual choices. You know, I, I think it's really all hands on deck at this point. I'm sure you share that sentiment because anyone who looks at, you know, the monstrosity of the problem that we're facing, it's um, hard to see it any other way. Also, your background in and the work that you've done in in fisheries uh, is, is interesting, if you don't mind me taking it a bit further down that path, is that um, can you give us a sense of the... I'll try not to make this about seaspiracy necessarily, but you know maybe it's brought Feel that free. issue up uh, for a lot of people recently. But yes. you know, I feel like the the oceans have been this. When I learned about the impact of climate change and these interconnected downstream impacts of uh, of pesticide runoff and the creation of dead zones, and then on top of that, you factor in temperature rise and ocean acidification and the decimation of the coral reefs and then the downstream impacts on species that rely on those uh, ecosystems it is truly the most horrific picture you can you can and it's also unseen that it when you finally even try to create mental models about what's happening and and you can only imagine that we will before we it'll be too late before we actually understand the the extent of of the damage that we're doing to the oceans um and on top of that you talk about plastic and everything else how dire is the situation with the ocean and to what extent is, you know, how intrinsically is food production tied to it? And how do we, if, and, and uh, so that's one question, and how do we find a sustainable way to to change the tra- trajectory of where we are going with the oceans connected, especially with overfishing uh, and the exploitation of fisheries, but do it in a way that's also just keeping in mind that what's maybe... Maybe what's the right choice for us in the U.S. is not necessarily the same one globally. And no, I think there's a really um, there's going to be important work, more important work to come on this point, which is um, so far we've been lumping everything we've been talking about: cellular meat, plant-based alternatives, meat and dairy, seafood into this category of food production. Mm-hmm. But there is a, a somewhat of a difference, right, between luxury products things that we would all like to eat or we enjoy eating and the basic needs of meeting food security. And almost all food capitalizes on the latter framing or angle. Mm -hmm. Like this is food security. We can't stop eating this meat. We have hungry people. Like we're eating over 200 pounds of meat per year. This is not about going hungry. This is about excess. You know, in the U S we're talking about an excessive culture, really of meat eating. So it would be okay for everyone to cut back a little bit for diabetes and heart disease. And again, the environmental benefits as well. So yet you'll find that, you know, the industry is like, well, this is feeding, this is feeding people. And there's a, there's a nice relationship between meat and dairy companies and the government um, to keep meat and dairy, for instance, in schools um, and in prisons. And, you know, the government's a large buyer of of these commodities. The seafood world is even worse in that respect. I mean, you, you if you talk to, you know, even independent fishery experts will almost always fall back on this narrative of food security and food nutrition and this being essential. And a friend of mine just sent me last night, you know, now they're selling krill oil at Costco uh, caught in Antarctica. And we're supposed to pretend this is about food security. I mean, this is 
I think a version of, of snake oil, uh, essentially. But uh, the industry would like you to believe that everything that they pull out of the ocean is feeding some, you know, hungry islander in a small island state somewhere. Now, there are people who genuinely rely on fish for food. I I am a ve- very aware of those people. I worked um, in small scale and subsistence fishing communities and looked at looking at their data in uh, part for part of my PhD. That is not, um, I don't think, the audience or the 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 real framing, for instance, of the film Seaspiracy, which is really thinking about factory factory fishing, industrial fishing, factory trawlers. There are forty thousand almost factory trawlers, you know, and on the ocean. Um, and the question of those boats contributing to food security, mm. I am empirically very dubious of that claim. And it's worth, I think, not thinking of the food system entirely as a subsistence. You know, it's it's just sort of ridiculous. The food system is very complicated. There are, of course, ways in which it meets our basic needs. And then there's a lot of frill on top of that. There's a lot of processed foods that aren't good for us, you know. So having, I hate to say this, but more nuance and not just saying, oh yeah, this is all what hungry people have to eat. Um, that should not be our, our knee-jerk reaction to any industrial food production uh, in my mind. It, it should be much, um, a much more considered conversation. And so, um, and it, then, you know, yes, I think direct exploitation of animals in the ocean has, you know, historically, of course, been... The, the much graver impact uh, as opposed to climate change. Now that's going to catch up with uh, up with us, but the fact that we you know take about 120 million tons of biomass out of the ocean every year is also. And the thing that struck me about that film, you know, I started studying for my PhD in 2005, and here we are again, sort of 15 years later, and the problems are all the same, if not worse. And what I liked about that film, and there's a lot to talk about what you didn't like. And so I just tabling that because I think it's important to focus on what the film got right, which is that a moral revolution is necessary, actually, Um, that just getting we're not going to get to where we need to go for the oceans through a sustainable seafood approach. We've tried it for 20 years. It hasn't worked. And I think there, you know, we have to start relating to these animals in a different way. Um, I, I fully endorse that message. Uh, so, you know, I think, and, you know, climate change, plastics, overexploitation, habitat loss, invasive species, you know, we're living in a world in which these issues are so interconnected and so challenging. And I think the best thing we can all do is ha- adopt a disposition that's open to change morally Physically, we need to change some things about our daily lives and to try to adapt, which we've done so many times before in the course of human history. So I have faith Mm -hmm. that we can do it if the, you know, if the industrial powers that be um, and, you know, our own, of course, inertia doesn't get in the way. Yeah, I think you're you're right about that. And there's parts of that I'm not saying I disagree with the entire documentary. There were parts I think were 100% accurate and there were parts that it was more the mode of storytelling that I had issues with sometimes watching it. But generally in terms of the message, I'm with you on that. I also think it's interesting that you have to that it's it's tricky to even talk about and I don't, I don't know why it is this way, but it is, that it's tricky to talk about bringing about a moral revolution. It's trying to get people to see things differently. And so because you, most people realize that's so difficult that you just, you try to put the attention elsewhere as what you might think are simpler solutions. But even if you change one person, I mean, we're not talking about just impacting their habits. But if you do want to bring about any hope of of uh, changing some of our systemic problems, you need the individuals to 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 focus on um, highlighting the limitations and what big meat and dairy is doing right now, or what industrial fishing is doing to the world. That's pretty much the only way change happens. It's people who decide to either do it alone or come together in the form of groups or setting up NGOs or. 
um, or using the media to to get the point across, and that results in maybe small steps that take fifteen years to happen and that translate into a full page ad in the New York Times, and and the next thing you know, maybe in five years, it uh, you actually see some results, right? So. That's the optimist in me, which is um, you have to keep trying to drill the message. Um, but the pessimist in me is always um, kind of disappointed by the fact that we don't hold the people with the most amount of power accountable enough. Um, and instead, we we tell people that this is that you can do the least you can, and then you don't have to worry about the problem. And then we, and then nothing changes. We are stuck within this, you know, we're stuck within a, a culture and an economic system that thrives on exploitation, and yet we are horrified by exploitation. And then we urge people to not support things that are exploitative in nature, yet the system continues to, to, to rage on and uh, nothing really happens. And we, what we end up is just, uh, as you alluded to earlier, is just marginal improvements in the form of aquaculture as the solution to industrial fishing, which it turns out not to be. It's just an additive, another product on the market. That then, And that's why I worry when it comes down to, say, as much as I want plant-based and cell-based to actually change the world, I worry that we end up in a place where it just becomes another lever for the the people who are benefiting the most from the damage done today to just then co-op that movement and that product category, launch brands and uh, invest money in new startups. And then next thing you know, we have uh, we have the meat shelf that has got a little plant-based section, a cell-based section, and uh, uh, you know industrial meat section. And it's all the same company, <laughs> and nothing has changed. Uh, and there's no way we can we can ever undo the damage or slow down the pace of climate change or this ecosystem destruction that, that I, I'm very clear that you're seeing as well and have been seeing in, in all your work and research. No, I think, um, again, you know, will this just slow the rate of growth? I mean, that's the question we have to pose about any solution. But without cellular-based seafood or, or plant-based meats and, and cell, cell meats, um, it is harder, I think, to make the moral argument. And what, you know, what that helps us do is say, look, there is a substitute. It's not going to be the the end of the world. You've tried the beyond, you know, um, breakfast sandwich at Starbucks. Uh, And having this available option to say, like, your world is not ending. You do not have to remake your model of your food entirely, um, I think is helpful when, when going through, I think what is an, is a moral revolution. We have to have a moral revolution with our relationship with the planet. There is no way out of that because what we're doing right now will lead to our own demise otherwise. So it's, it's one or the other. Uh, and for all of the the conversation about you won't take my meat away, you can't take my you know shrimp cocktail away, whatever the, that may be. There's the other side of it, which is what that is taking away from everybody else, and it's it's not fantasy. You know, we are really living very near to, if not exceeding, the boundaries of some of the biophysical limits of this planet. And there's, you know, I would love, I would love to just, you know, read books for the rest of my life and visit museums. That would be great. Um, That's not the world we're living in right now. And it really is urgent that we have this, that we do transform our relationship. It's, I think, why we're both, you know, talking about this right now. We recognize that urgency. And so the more that um, we can do, I think, to also be aware of the kinds of arguments that are likely to occur in the setting, you know, that for me, it's so fascinating to watch how meat and dairy, their, their counter arguments are mapping so well, as I mentioned onto the fossil fuel, what the fossil fuel industry was doing 20 years ago. That's uh, to me, very illuminating. It prepares you in a way for, um, for what's to come. And I think, um, what we're doing is not enough. It's not sufficient. Greta Thunberg is of course, correct. Uh, but it is 
to me, it's exciting to see how much has happened with regards to climate change, even in the last 10 years, even though it's not enough. Uh, it's, it's still, as you know, much different than it was in 2010. So how much more of your research do you anticipate to be focused on big meat and dairy? Because, I mean, I think this is this is the first time I've seen something like this since the grain report came out. Um, and I'm, I'm, and I think we need more of it, frankly. I mean, I think as much as we, we want to be, we need groups and people to be soft peddling and, uh, encouraging transformation from within the industry. We also need others to really call, uh, the, the, the biggest offenders out so that they're so that public awareness increases because we know they're spending money on changing public opinion. They're um, actively getting scientific papers to be written to undermine efforts to draw links between climate change and livestock production. And they are also lobbying for, for regulations that are more conducive for them to do business as usual that in, that ensures that on one hand as you said earlier they can continue to tell the story of growth to their shareholders while on the other hand um claiming that they're doing the right thing and those those things are kind of not really the same uh can't coexist right so unless of course you do transition away from animal protein then maybe you can claim a story of uh, and you make a commitment which is what i've been saying you've got to you've got to hold the big meat and dairy companies to a standard that I don't know if the the automotive industry was necessarily held to, but that the direction they are going towards where General Motors isn't just saying we're going to go net zero by 2030 or 2035. They're saying we're going to phase out all vehicles being that have got an internal combustion engine. We're going all electric. We aren't even going to make these anymore. Imagine if if Tyson came out and said that, even give the year 2040, I'll give you till 2050, fine. Say that you're going to reduce it to maybe 25% of your output. We believe that much in these new technologies. Now that would be a win. And even if it happens within the next five years, I still think it might, it's definitely way better than where we are. So back to my question, which is what, um, where's your focus from a research standpoint and what else do you think you'll be looking at uh, without giving too much away at the same time? <laughs> Well, so, um, you know, General Motors didn't always have that position Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I hope, I hope they're being honest about it now. And I think that is a sort of whatever, whatever reckoning has to come from meat and dairy has to come much more quickly than it did for fossil fuels. And it's associated, they've had 50 years to come around to their newfound positions Meat and dairy, as we said, has had 15. Mm -hmm. Now that makes them both uh, slightly more agile in some sense because of the PR firms have learned a lot in that time period. Um, But it also makes them a little bit more vulnerable because the citizenry is also better informed. Academics are also better informed. And uh, to your question, I really see my role in academia with with relative job security as asking and and, uh, questions that the private sector won't ask of itself. Um, and, you know, not not cellular and plant-based and not meat, beef and dairy. And so we will continue to do research here. I think that ask questions, again, that won't be asked anywhere else in, in society. Um, when we originally conceived of this work, we were thinking about calculating emissions for the biggest companies. And then the grain report came out, which was so wonderful because we didn't have to do that work. We could move on to this Next question. And I think we'll get um, more fine-grained into some of the sociology of, um, of the social influence, at least in the US context, maybe a few other countries too. And um, and then we'll, you know, we already are thinking about um looking at extraterritorial responsibility and uh animal ag and NDCs, mm. uh getting countries as well to focus more on these sectors. Uh this sector in particular would be, uh, I think, a big step forward. So uh, what exactly? I, I can't say for certain, but we're very similar, I think, to what's happened with fossil fuel companies. We're going to be, again, looking at the role of the private sector in general, you know, the role of finance, the role of um, insurance companies, uh these various other arms to push on beyond just the meat and dairy companies themselves. And what's your personal interest in this field? Obviously, you've you've been focused on it now for a few years. What why why are you so passionate about it? 
Besides the fact that it's an existential imperative, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not enough for you. Um, well, you know, I'm interested in areas where they're they cut across many ethical domains. Uh, so I'm also study the wildlife trade. I also study fisheries, as I mentioned. They tend to have an animal component as well as an ecological component, as well as potentially even this food security angle. I've written, you know, against the case, the case against octopus farming. That's something that's on the horizon uh, that I really think we should disallow in advance of it, you know, even mm-hmm. becoming a, a big industry. And I like issues that are are, you know. They have an environmental ethic. They have an animal ethic. They might have a broader ecological component, um, and they might even have a food security, you know, a kind of argument embedded within them. Uh, that that's interesting to me, and it, it's interesting, especially in a globalized context, you know, that these are markets that are so transnational, so connected. So to me, they embody so much about the Anthropocene because they cut across so many domains. And those are the kinds of issues I like to work on, you know, intractable, unsolvable, <laughs> complex, impossible problems. They're, they're fun. If I was in academia, that's what I would do too. It just seems like, why not? I mean, you might as well tackle problems that uh, seem impossible. Right? Yeah, I shouldn't even say tackle, right? Think about, um, yes. because not, no problem I've tackled has been successfully, you know, TKO'd. Well, so let's see if if we can get to that. Uh, I'll give you. So I'll, I always. So I know I've been very cynical through most parts of this conversation, but uh, I, I try to end on a positive note, which is uh, which is the question I ask all all the guests to this podcast, which is if you could, you know, envision a, a better future, and I give the year twenty fifty because that's as far as I can think, and we also kind of know that's sort of the time frame within which we have to do some things. Um, if we manage to bring about the change that we desperately need in, in how food is produced, distributed, and consumed globally, um, and if you did it right, what what is your vision of the food system in the year 2050? If if you actually manage to, if this research leads to some change, and and we can we can see all the um, resulting impacts of it. So I um. You know, I don't probably think big enough for that, but I did really appreciate the Eat Lancet report uh, that tried to think about what diet would look like within, uh, you know, both a health and an ecological context. And I think that what they were motioning at is is probably right, is we're going to move toward a plant-based system or maybe a mixture of plant-based and cellular system if, like we say, we can have this more coordinated approach. Um I would like to see no octopus farming. I would love to die knowing that that industry never got off the ground and the end of industrial fishing. Uh, factory fishing is um, is immoral and uh, completely unsustainable. Uh, there's no reason why humans should be the largest, most efficient um, and, and consumptive predator in the ocean. And uh, yeah, and, and if we are there in 2050, I will have viewed my life as very exciting and um, having participated in one of the greatest moral revolutions of our time. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I truly appreciate the work you're doing. It is really important. And I think uh, we need a lot more of it. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to see this effort underway to not just um, address certain sectors of the industry, but do it in a way that does um, look at the bigger picture in a more interconnected way, where it isn't just as simple as how does one industry survive versus the other? How do animals play a role in all of this and what the impact on um, on species and ecosystems truly are? Um, it's We need a lot more of that thinking and also to be able to um, call out the, the biggest offenders uh, in a way that actually gets them to pay attention and do something. So that, if nothing else, that in itself is the biggest reason why you should continue doing your work. So I appreciate More ads in the New York Times, yes. <laughs> As a starting point only, yes. <laughs> I'll take it. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate the time today, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yes, me as well. Thanks for the work you do. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, 
please subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.